0: Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with the creator of the show and my co-host, my friend Tom Jokey.
1: Tom, we got a big one here. We do, Christopher. And it is funny because every once in a while, I'll come across an artist and I go, Oh, wow, we have not done anything on this group. And the group I'm talking about is super tramp. So we have... A whole whack of clips. I think I overwhelmed Christopher with the whack of clips (laughs) I've sent of Supertramp to him. But they're excellent. And also, they're really fascinating because almost all of them deal with the clash between Roger Hodgson and Rick Davies. And it is so interesting the way this plays out over three different interviews.
0: And it spoiled my breakfast here in America. I just want you to know. (laughs) So we have all that coming up with Supertramp. That's not all, Tom. We also have a late 80s interview with Peter Cetera. And Peter, let's put it this way, minces no words about his former band Chicago. And also the personality clashes between him and producer David Foster.
1: Oh, yeah. Come for the Chicago drama, stay for the backhanded compliments about David but without the compliments.
0: <laughs> the Chicago drama, I like that. It has yeah. a nice sort of theatrical ring to it. <laughs> yeah. Pulling back the curtains on rock
1: and roll's biggest battles. <laughs> Do I sense a theme coming up here today, Tom? For sure. You know, if you happen to be a therapist listening, you are going to have an absolute <laughs> field day with the entire show because after the Supertramp and Peter Cetera segments, we're going to focus on some other very famous breakups, especially when lead singers walked away or were asked to leave the band that made them famous. Ozzy Osbourne on why he couldn't wait to get the heck away from Black Sabbath. Dennis DeYoung being asked if he's even speaking to the guys from Styx, and his answer is very funny and slightly disturbing. And
0: Tom, there's your conversation with Steve Perry in which he's clearly upset with his former Journey bandmates. Also, Lionel Richie explains the biggest regret of his whole career.
1: Oh, let me guess. Recording Endless Love with Diane Ross?
0: Well, you know what? You hang in, you stay tuned, and and we'll see, okay?
1: Right. And of course, whenever we have an episode about people getting cranky, we always feature the one and only. These eyes.
0: (laughs) Burton Cummings, yo! <laughs>
1: That's right. He's the best. Oh, he really is. And the clip that we have is just sensational, as they always are. When he's cranky, he's as funny as hell. That's why yes. I love
0: all these Burton segments.
1: Exactly. But he's also deadly honest. Like, it's really good. I love him. Anyway, oh, yeah. all that and much more on this very contentious episode of Famous Last Words. Let's get started with Supertramp.
2: Right, i give a little bit.
1: give a little bit 1977 with Supertramp. hmm they were one
0: of the biggest bands of the 70s tom they reached their artistic peak with 1974's crime of the century and their commercial uh. zenith with 79's breakfast in america mm-hmm. but and it's a big but the tension of the <laughs> songwriting team of roger hudson and rick davies which worked so well on the former album was splintered by the end of the decade. In fact, you'll notice that the departure of Hodgson looms large in the clips that we're about to hear. These interviews range from the Breakfast in the America days through to the release of the 82 album, Famous Last Words. No relation. <laughs> <laughs> it's also very significant to note, by the way, that Supertramp had their greatest success in da Canada, where they had two. This is amazing. Two yes. diamond-selling albums. That is one million units in Canada alone, both Crime and Breakfast. Yeah. Uh, a first for any band or artist in this country.
1: We have so many interviews in our archives, and we've gone through all of them and have set aside the best ones, so you bloody well right better settle in, because we're definitely taking the long way home. Stop. I'm this way all the time, even in the quietest moments, Christopher. <sighs>
0: Let's get started with our clips, or he won't stop. Here's Roger Hodson talking about breakfast in America.
3: We really felt that this album, we wanted to, to break out of ourselves in a way. We've always been very introverted, inclined to be introverted, especially with the last album, Quietest Moments. That was a very introvert album. And as, as Rick says, he sums this album up by saying it's, uh, it's not totally true, but he says it's we're conceding to the times in a way. The times really cool for energetic music and really lively extrovert music that's really positive
1: title cut from breakfast in america 1979 super tramp such a huge album for them and many of the songs are great but they don't hold together in a cohesive way the way that Crime of the Century or even In the Quietest Moments did, it's also interesting that they say they are conceding to the times by making energetic music on Breakfast in America.
0: Mm. Hodgson tells the story behind the biggest hit from the album. Track 2 is a, like an update on school, in a way.
3: Mm. It's called The Logical Song. The theme lyrically is uh, that, that throughout childhood and throughout schooling, we're taught how to be all these different things, how to be sensible and logical and practical and intellectual and cynical. But no one actually tells us who we are and where we came from. Then they sent me away to teach me how to be sensible, logical, oh, responsible,
1: practical. The Logical song, 1979, Supertramp. that song went to number seven in the UK, number six in the USA, and number one in Canada. And it just occurred to me that that song might be one of the last songs by a progressive rock band to chart significantly. I could be completely wrong about that, because even as I'm saying that, I'm thinking of Owner of a Lonely Heart, but to Mm. me, the prog rock era probably ended around that time, and there were some people who would probably say that the logical song is the farthest thing from prog rock at that point.
0: (laughs) Uh, You know, I think I missed that era. (laughs) So.
1: <laughs> I think that was my choice, buddy. Well,
0: you know, Oh, Lucky Man and I was done pretty much.
1: Is that right? <laughs> yes. The, you know what my favorite part of uh, Lucky Man by Emerson, Lake and Palmer was? Is the weirdly placed synth at the end of it. The <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's just bizarre to me. <laughs> Yes, Keith Emerson was
1: having a moment there, I think.
0: <laughs> did you ever see their show where he stabs the keyboard with his knife from behind? No, I yeah. did not. Yeah. <laughs> did oh, yeah. he
1: pretend it was a bandmate? Like, what's the story there? <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, where okay. are we now? I'm lost. We're back to Supertramp. All right, here's another one of the hits. Goodbye, Stranger was one of Rick's new songs. And it uh,
3: reminds me a bit of an old 60s song about... a. Uh, a romeo type guy he had a hard time relating to <laughs> the romeo type guy cuz it's not his kind of person
4: like
1: a king without a castle like a queen without a throne
4: i'm a lover and i must be moving
1: on Goodbye, stranger 1979 super tramp from breakfast in america that's a fun song and it sounded great on the radio in the summer of 79 especially the last 90 seconds of the album version which just cooks i started listening to it the other day i listen to it every day now because the song roars to a big finish kind of like the way go your own way by fleetwood mac does it's just Mm. like it's just full boil and it's such great musicianship
0: yeah They are great players. Tom, the next interview is from a few weeks later. And asking the questions is our friend Jeannie Becker, who's talking to Dougie Thompson and Roger Hodson. And you can tell they've been on the road for a while.
4: It'll be the last for a while. It'll probably be the last of the marathons, you know, where we go out and tour for eight months at a time. Why is that? Because it's just a, it's a very taxing old. way to do it. You know. <laughs> oh,
5: you don't look very old to me, Roger Hodgson. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm. We've done it this way for five or six years, and it's time we did it a different way.
5: Well, what do you want to do? What do you think that's going to give you a chance to do? Work on your stuff a little more closely, or
3: I think touring does be- get to you after you've done it for too long. I mean, I think you you get uh, you reach a high and then it begins to just feel repetitive. But I think if we go out again, it'll be on a much uh, lesser scale. I think uh, especially Rick and I feel we want to kick back and rediscover ourselves outside of touring again and let the creative juices flow a bit
0: more.
1: You know at this point you can tell they are just starting to broach the subject of Rick and Roger working apart.
0: Tom the concept of a faceless band and I don't know who would like that term to describe their work (laughs) but it's a fascinating one and it's one that the guys from Supertramp actively pursued. I think the, the band has an image. I
3: don't think us as people have an image. That's probably what he meant. Well, has that
5: been a real conscious kind of uh, yeah, effort?
3: I think so. We, w- we want to uh, be able to r- walk down the streets of Toronto and not get recognised, which we're doing now, which which we're really happy for, happy about.
5: So you shy away from a lot of publicity?
4: From yeah. faces, anyway, yeah, just from making the individual faces. Sort
5: of I mean, people
3: can talk place. about the music as much as they like, but uh, we don't like being photographed much so we never seem to appear in uh, too many magazines with our photos and so it works well. You know, I I think the only other band that have achieved that is Pink Floyd and we respect them for that.
1: Yeah, the problem with being a faceless band is that when you go solo like Roger Hodgson did, it's harder for people to know who you even are.
0: (laughs) You know, there's there's something sort of Zen about that. This concept of being yeah. faceless and and not being recognized by your fans, but never <laughs> never mind. <laughs> this is interesting. Roger Hudson looks ahead to a future that never really happened, talking about Zen. We feel that this album is our is commercially
3: a, r- a real success for us, but I, I think artistically we still the album is still on its way somewhere in the future. I think Rick and I really feel that um, we've both diverged as, as people and as writers so much, that, and we're so such totally different people, that where we come together to put an album together, it's very difficult to choose songs which balance each other out and, and blend to make an album. And so I really think that if, if we're going to achieve the uh, cohesion that Crime of the Century had, then we've got to start working much more together again and, and stop writing separately like, like it has been for the last few albums.
1: That's such an interesting clip, Christopher. He admits that although Breakfast in America is a big hit, it's not the artistic achievement that Crime of the Century is, and he knows he and Rick need to work together to make that happen, but that will not happen.
0: Here, Roger tries to explain the success of Breakfast in America.
6: Do you have any idea why Breakfast in America has been so popular?
3: Um, yes, because <laughs> it's uh, it's good, and it's it's it comes in a... At a time when there's a great void of anything that is good in rock music, I believe it's probably more, much more accessible to a, l- a large, larger number of people. For myself, I can still listen to it, which is pretty amazing. Still after a year, and I still actually enjoy the songs.
6: Is it escape? Is that how people well, are seeing
3: it? All music, a lot of music is escape. Music mm-hmm. itself is is escape now.
6: But you're telling people things in there, mm-hmm. little meanings here and there.
3: Yeah, but it's uh, there's a bit more sugar this time. <laughs>
1: Yet another massive song from 1979's Breakfast in America, That's Supertramp. Where are we now, Christopher? Okay, so here we've jumped ahead a few years, and things are not
0: going as Roger Hodgson had hoped. Now, I figure this interview would be, to be mm, somewhere in the 1983 zone during their massive yeah. world tour, and Roger has announced he's about to leave the band. Here, he explains how the personality clashes between himself and Rick Davies led to Roger's decision. We really reached a point at which we've we
3: felt we weren't bringing ourselves our musical selves out uh, to the best on on albums especially famous last words famous last words was a very very painful project it was um not fun to make and it took us over a year and it really made us realize that we can't go on like this and something had to change
1: and the, the uh, best change we could come up with was what was the decision we've made For the most part, Hodgson and Davies would share songwriting credits on the bulk of Supertramp's music, even when they wrote them separately. And boy, does that sound familiar, doesn't it? There's a lot
0: of bands that work that way very effectively. That's right. A little bit of distance is not necessarily a
1: bad thing. Back to our chat with Supertramp, and the splintering in this band is getting very real. Okay, this clip is weird. Here are arch enemies
0: Rick Davies and Roger Hodgson sitting side by side talking about why they can't work together anymore
4: <laughs> in truth we haven't really written too much together in in a while you know since crime of the century days it's uh it's a shame but uh, that's the way it, it sort of went you, you make uh, some success and you tend to it tends to split you apart in some way you know you don't have to shack up in the same old house and all that
3: i think also the songs became uh more personal after crime of the century Mm -hmm. crime of the century was much more a group effort and after then that we we both became more confident as writers and uh, wanted to express ourselves individually
1: oh that is
0: genuinely an odd clip tom it gets even odder as rick and dougie try to figure out how to replace hudson
4: to try and replace roger like a clone would be stupid Mm -hmm. Uh, you know we might even be looking at two or three people that come in There's no sort of uh, ambition to dominate the whole thing anymore. I'm not, you know, I'm basically a group type of person. I enjoy being in the band and working with lots of musicians. Whatever works with the band, you know. If a horn section worked, we might have a horn section. No horn section. If a sitar player worked, (laughs) we would have a sitar (laughs) player.
1: (laughs) Imagine what that would sound like. Super Trap with sitars. Give a little bit. (laughs) You know, one of the things that drove the band apart was the band's management. Roger was not enamored with the fact that it was Rick's wife who managed the group. <laughs> so they go their separate ways, and Rick decides that in subsequent Supertramp tours, they will not play any of Roger's songs. <laughs>
0: oh, good well, idea.
1: Well, that, <laughs> that does not go over well with the fans. Imagine going to one of their shows... A super tramp show and you don't mm-hmm. hear the logical song take the long way home dreamer breakfast in America <laughs> and give a little bit among you, many others
0: you'd wonder what show you'd gone to
1: right that's right so they briefly reunite for one show in 1993 it goes really well and they decide to give it another go but the disagreements over management torpedo those plans again hmm so it's such a shame a great band with a wonderful body of work. I saw Roger Hodgson perform about 10 years ago with only a keyboard and a mic, and he was excellent. His playing and his singing were as strong as ever. It was around that time that he said he didn't think that Supertramp would ever play together again. In fact, he said somewhat disingenuously that fans were telling him not to reunite.
0: Well, that's right up there <laughs> with the devil made me do it, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: One more reason they may not reunite for a large world tour. Roger Hodgson is now 71 years old, and Rick Davies turns 77 this year. Mm. So, while it lasted, those two made some incredible music together and apart.
0: That's Super on Famous Lost Words.
1: Still to come on this special breakup edition of Famous Lost Words, why the guys in Chicago wanted to give Peter Cetera a knuckle sandwich... Mm and other harrowing breakup stories from Ozzy Osbourne, Sticks, Journey, and many more.
0: This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. If you're enjoying the show on one of the many radio stations across Canada or listening to the podcast in one of 70 different countries around the world, don't forget to tell a friend. Look at it this way. If everyone listening tells one friend, we could have... Hang on a sec. to carry the sick... We, we can have twice as many listers for our next show.
7: 25 or 6 to 4. Oh,
1: yeah. 25 or 6 to 4, that's Chicago from 1970, featuring the lead vocals of Peter Cetera.
0: I think this is the first time I've seen an artist described on their Wikipedia page as retired. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like nobody wants to state unequivocally that they're done. Yes, But Peter Cetera seems to have done just that on a 2019 podcast. No, not this one. Nope. (laughs) A fine career capped by membership in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after 25 albums, both with Chicago and recorded solo, and a whole lot of records sold. That's his legacy. Mm -hmm. Now, in this interview, he sounds a little bit world-weary to me, but not unhappy with the choices he made along the way. Here, Cetera talks about the group dynamic versus the individual artist and knuckle sandwiches. Here's a quote
5: from a guy named Mr. Lamb. I think you worked with him. And it says, Chicago is the most successful experiment in group therapy ever to go down in history. There have been times when each of us wanted to walk away. But if somebody is obviously egoing out, there's six of us to deal with, and we'll get together and give him a knuckle sandwich. So the question is, did you get a knuckle sandwich?
8: No way. No. No. I. I you know, I think that's... That statement right there, I think, kind of wraps up the whole the whole group philosophy thing where uh all for one and none for you you know it's uh that's what kind of made it difficult for the group because because I, I I mean you know I really didn't believe that but but I was caught up in it and mm-hmm. uh, uh no, we never gave anybody a knuckle sandwich, although I think they would like to right now <laughs> probably
5: how did you approach? When you left Chicago, and how did they react to your leaving?
8: Well, I mean, you know, basically, I I just uh, wanted a uh, to get oh recognition, uh, credit, money, everything for what I was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I was co-producing album, and I and I and I wasn't getting any kind of credit for that. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to uh, do a solo album, and they wanted to go on the road, and uh, so you know, a bunch of things just. There was this rift all of a sudden, and they kind of felt that maybe they would get somebody else and uh you know, and I kind of felt that maybe that was a good idea mm-hmm.
5: was the first um thought of leaving in eighty one when you did your first solo album?
8: No, the first uh, thought of leaving was about two weeks after I joined the group I <laughs> don't <laughs> <wanna> know, <laughs> no. know the truth <laughs> yeah it's just uh, yeah. yeah i I've always had it for you know for a long time i I never quite agreed with the philosophy of the of the group group
5: Too much family too close I want to have my own life
8: Yeah I always found it a little bit upsetting to me that somebody should have a, a say in, into how my song should be done mm-hmm. and that's just not group type thinking you know some some of the guys you know were very good at you know Bobby Lamb was very good at presenting a song and then seeing what the group had to offer to it mm-hmm. I was not one of those people. I had a set way the way I wanted it done, and uh, I could never get it exactly the way I wanted it. So, no, there was always that inkling there of, you know, going out on my own.
1: Boy, it sounds like those riffs ran very deep in the band. By the way, this interview from 1986 is with my very good friend and colleague, Marilyn Dennis. We've run a lot of more recent interviews with Marilyn, but this is one of her very first, from her earliest days at Chum FM in Toronto, which is where we work together, and she is already getting and like in that time she's already getting great answers out of the celebrities that she interviews it's great this is a really great interview
0: yeah she's got the touch she always has yeah. now here peter gets his wish and becomes a beach boy
5: when you did uh if you leave me now that was in 76 and did you not go on tour with the beach boys with during that year Do I is that no right? the
8: no? beach boys went on tour with us okay
5: yeah. Okay <laughs> Was it just one of the greatest experiences you want to recollect in your career?
8: God, it was wonderful was it? Oh okay. yeah. what it was, if I can recall, I'm not I'm not a historian, but uh, we were real hot at that point and they were not really happening. and so we took them on tour and uh, it was just wonderful. I still think you know I still find people that say that was one of the greatest shows that they've ever seen. You know they would come on and do a you know their set, and then we would come on and do a set, and then we would uh, we would close the show with about five or six songs together. I mean, and, and you know I finally got a chance to be a Beach Boy. I sang uh... you know I sang one of their songs, and uh, and so it was wonderful.
5: Didn't they do backup on "If You Leave Me Now"? No,
8: nope. "Wishing You Were Here." You were they here. were they were up at uh, the same studio we were, and uh, and I said, hey, you know, jeez, I, I always wanted to meet the Beach Boys, and be a Beach Boy, would you guys sing background? on Yeah, and so so for one day I I was a a Beach Boy on record on Wishing You Were Here.
1: Wishing You Were Here, here, Chicago with the Beach Boys from October of 1974. Peter's great, you know, but you can really hear his ego in this interview, but still the Mm. content of this interview is very amazing, (laughs) I really like it. Tom, I got to tell you, have you seen the David Foster documentary? I have not. I, I I'm kind of staying away from it for for reasons <laughs> I can't even comprehend. But uh, but go ahead. Well,
0: it's worthy. It's all. And okay. It's very revealing. And many yeah. things are revealing. But the but the section with Chicago. Yes. Yeah. yeah and the the wounds are laid bare, and and you won't be surprised by Sotera's comments about their time working together.
5: You seem to write very well, or collaborate with David Foster. What's it like working with him?
8: Well David and I really didn't didn't uh you know work on my solo album outside of the uh, glory of love
5: right but uh, I'm also referring to hard to say I'm sorry that they're both such successes I mean can we look forward to other projects with the both of you working on it
8: uh, I don't know i think we've we've uh that's possible in the future mm-hmm. David and I have i sort of like the yin and yang of songwriting you know we uh you know when you when you look at big songwriting teams there's you know David and backrack and and Leonard and McCartney and stuff do you you always notice that there's this terrible friction and you wonder how, how did the hell do they ever write songs together yeah. and that's what it is with uh, you know with David and myself he's opinionated I'm opinionated uh, his egos is as big if not bigger than mine so when we get in a room together it's you know it's it's a lock of wills you know yeah. it just so happens that we write fantastic songs together so whether or not we work together in the future is, uh, you know, uh, uh, depends on how busy I am and how busy he is.
1: Okay, so this is interesting. So around the same time of that interview, I interviewed Peter in a, in a separate uh, location, and I basically told him... Thinking that he would agree that David Foster was a genius, and boy, did he shoot down that idea pretty quickly! <laughs> I wish I had that interview uh, to play for you, but I just can't locate it. But it just—it uh, struck me as a as a pretty funny moment uh, from an artist who was very opinionated about his uh, thoughts about his former colleague David Foster.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Peter talks about a Chicago reunion.
1: We hear about these groups breaking
5: up. Oh my gosh, the Doobie Brothers are going to break up. Hey, guess who's getting reunited after five, six years? We ever going to hear that story from Chicago and Peter Satira?
8: No, no, I really don't think so. It's not, uh, I didn't break up because of any rift with personality. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I think a lot of groups break up because of a personality rift. Well, your wife said to my wife, you know, uh, I broke up because of, uh, you know, because of artistic. Freedom that I wanted and um, that's not something that you can ever expect to agree on and so I don't foresee that at all Uh, I think they'll they'll do wonderful with their album and I and I know I'm gonna do wonderful with my album and uh, we'll
1: leave it at that and Peter never did play with the guys again in fact they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 30 years after this interview and he had a dispute with the other guys about their performance and decided not only not to perform, but he did not even attend. Ooh. Yeah. And breaking up is hard to do. They say that breaking up is Breaking Up Is Hard To Do, 1962, Neil Sedaka, as we talk about breakups. (laughs) You know, whether romantic or professional, those breakups leave a profound mark. And as we heard in our previous two segments with Supertramp and Peter Cetera, the reasons are complicated and often remain unresolved. So, for the rest of this episode, let's talk about singers who left the bands that helped make them famous.
4: Just a small town,
1: 1981. Don't stop believing. Steve Perry, lead vocals with Journey. Steve Perry of Journey, who left a hugely successful
0: band at its peak, will be held responsible by some, but he has a different take on the split.
1: Some of your old Journey bandmates have formed a new group called Abraxas, and oh, yeah, uh, and uh, well, how much have you heard, and do you know? Do you keep in touch with the guys at all?
6: Not really. I they're not pleased with me because I'm not doing what they wanted me to do. You know when they wanted me to do it, so. Uh, that's the way they've sort of set up the guidelines of our friendship. And unfortunately, that's not going to work, I guess, at this point. Can you tell me what they wanted you to do? Mm, they wanted me to let them know when I was coming back to Journey. And uh, if I couldn't tell them when I was coming back, that uh, they were going to go ahead and go on without me. And that was the way I guess, I, I don't. it doesn't sound like an invitation, it sounds like an ultimatum to me.
1: That's Steve Perry in 1994 telling me about the bad feelings between him and the rest of the guys from Journey. You can hear more from Steve in episodes 106 and
9: 507.
1: 1977, That's Easy by the Commodores with Lionel Richie on lead vocals.
0: Lionel Richie has an entirely different set of feelings about his old bandmates, the Commodores. His solo career was perhaps inevitable, but he still misses the guys. Here he is with Marilyn Dennis from about 20 years ago answering a question from a listener.
5: Hi, Mary. Hi.
9: What's your question?
8: Um, Just wanted to know if there was something that you had to change in your whole career,
5: what
9: would it be? That's a good question, Mary. Yeah, you know what? I I think it would be... I think I missed the the opportunity to have the farewell tour for the Commodores, with the Commodores. Mm-hmm. I I left, and we didn't get a chance to do that big I'm leaving kind of thing or we're breaking up or whatever the case. Because we didn't know we were breaking up. We just, I always thought it was just going to be to blow off some steam for a minute. We'll take a couple of months off. Do other projects. Yeah, and we'll realize that we can't let this happen, and we'll get back together. By the time I got to the second album, Mm -hmm. all night long, the rocket was off the launching pad. It was gone, but I I always regretted the fact that we didn't put the period Is
1: there a reunion in in progress
9: at all? Well, to tell you the truth about it right now, we have only two guys left of the original Commodores in the Commodores, and the rest of these guys, this four of us that are out of the group completely. Mm. So we have to first of all get them back in. And then secondly, the farthest away is Ronald LaPred who's living in Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, wow. But he's doing fabulous over yeah. there. But I think I think what I'm gonna do is on this world tour yeah. that I'm gonna pull off in a minute, okay. I'm gonna bring the Commodores on stage as a surprise s- somewhere in town or mm-hmm. somewhere in the world. Okay. I'm afraid that if I get them on stage, the problem will then be getting them off the stage. <laughs> Because I think once the lights hit them again, they'll they'll know.
5: All right. Well, we look forward to that. I hope that happens. That would be just great
1: for all of us. All 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 night long, Lionel Richie from 1983. You can really imagine that once that rocket ship was off the launch pad, there was no way of placing it back down on Earth. And there was also just no way that Lionel could return to the Commodores and continue as if nothing had changed. It reminds me of when Michael Jackson scored big with Thriller, and then he was forced by his family, his brothers essentially, to reunite for the Victory album and tour, and that was mostly at the doing of their father, Joe Jackson. That album, the Victory album, really was not very good, and the tour was okay it was exciting but it was kind of disappointing i trying you know it's funny you got me thinking i'm trying to remember my feelings before that
0: show i did see that concert it mm-hmm. was exciting i think yeah. maybe because i'd never seen michael jackson perform live yes I was totally happy with the fact that he was up there with his brothers, and there's something kind of genuine and family-like about that. Yeah. But I know what you mean. Ex- expediency does dictate some reu- reunions that maybe should never have happened.
1: Yeah, and he definitely was against that that whole reunion thing, but he was kind of shamed into it uh, by his father, from my understanding. He didn't really want to do it. He, you could see at that point how he really just wanted to focus on his own thing and, um, and to be kind of be dragged back into the family. It's like The Godfather, right? Um, where he keeps, keeps <laughs> being pulled back in.
0: <laughs> Our reference level is just increasing exponentially I here on this
1: show. Actually, kind of proud of that one.
0: This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Joking. And this week, we're diving deep into a pool of bad feelings, accusations, recrimination, and broken promises. No. It's not an episode of The Real Housewives of Toronto. It's the tempestuous story of rock bands and their lead singers. I'm
9: sailing away.
1: That sticks from 1977, The Grand Illusion, and Come Sail Away.
0: You know, Tom, when the expression pack of lies is used early in an interview. <laughs> You know there's a depth to the hostility that led to the changing of the guard in Sticks, right? Yeah. Dennis DeYoung lays it out in very human terms in this interview with Marilyn Dennis and Roger Ashby.
10: You know one thing we didn't ask you last time, What's because it? I was a little uh, trepidatious, I didn't know whether you wanted to talk about yeah. it or not, but uh, your departure from Sticks. Yeah. Right. I think there are people who still don't understand what, what happened there. Well, I would be one of them. Okay. <laughs> can you Great. Can you tell us what you know? Um. I only know what I read in the papers, and I, that's a pack of lies. Here's what happened: I um, I became ill at the end of '97. I did. I worked my my tail off in '97, doing like three projects. One of which was a sticks tour, and um, and I got I I you know I got sick. I got a flu. I got you know huh. bad flu, and I was really worn out. My dad had passed away at the same time, so emotionally, physically, I was spent. I got sick. And and I couldn't get better. It was one of those things where you know, just linger. Top A pers- type type A personality could go put their head through the wall doing Suddenly I w- I couldn't do anything. I, oh, I no. you know so I was going doctor after doctor. Make a long story short. It took me about sixteen months to figure out that i 'd become light sensitive from what they call a post viral symptom from the from this flu, mm. but i didn 't know it, and I never wore sunglasses. you see, I have them on in here. I wear them all the time. Yeah. all I had to do was figure that out, but in the interim we, the guy there was Tommy and j y myself, the three guys that were left in the band were making an album in my house where I had a studio, and I was going up and sleeping half the day coming down and They wanted me to commit to a tour, and I said, "Just give me another six months to recover i'm just i just don't i can 't physically do it." And uh, they felt that they didn't want to wait, and so they replaced me, and that's what happened. Oh, gee! All right. Now, are you on speaking terms with those guys? Uh, we are, but you know, only if there's guns trained on us. I, I see. Okay. All right. So
5: because we, we know the guy that took over Dennis's role.
10: Yeah. Larry Gowen. Larry That's Gowen. right, yeah. Absolutely. I think he's from here. Isn't he's he? from he Toronto. Is. Yes, yeah. he is.
1: Oh, you got to admit that while Dennis DeYoung has a pretty corny sense of humor, he does tell a good story. And if you're a Styx fan, I promise that we'll get to more Styx interviews someday soon. Much to Christopher's chagrin.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, I had a moment of being sad there, but, yeah. you know,
1: I'm, I'm okay.
2: Because <laughs> I got my own way to ride.
1: That's Burton Cummings from 1977, what a fun song, my own way to rock. You know, Tom, for Burton Cummings, going solo was a shock to the system.
0: And he stepped right into the deep end when he did it.
2: I was absolutely terrified. And uh, I had two reasons to be afraid that night. One was the fact that it was my first gig under my own name ever in my life. The second reason was it was my hometown. It happened to be Winnipeg, so instead of four million butterflies, I had eight million butterflies. And I was very, very intimidated, unsure of myself. My hands were sweating so much they were slipping off the black keys, you know. It was really quite a traumatic thing. But after the first few notes of the first tune and a standing ovation, uh, I was never afraid again. But that first few moments of the first concert were really unnerving, and I felt as if it were the first time I'd ever been on stage, even though I'd played literally thousands of times before that. I think any time you make a transition, like from, from the security of a group, then you leave that nest and you go out on your own, you know. It's almost like leaving home for the first time. I had always been in bands from the time I was 13 until I was 27. And bang, the next thing I knew I was out under my own name. And it was quite, quite terrifying at first. But, uh... Ironically, you know, I've had so much success in the last year as a solo artist. I, I, building up a confidence which I don't think is a false confidence at all. I've, I've found my feet as a solo artist. I know how to go about being a single artist now, and I'm, uh, I'm quite happy these days.
1: That is simply a great clip. Burton Cummings from Mm -hmm. the late 70s talking about going solo for the first time. And of course, Winnipeg is his hometown and also the birthplace of his music career. By the way, speaking of Winnipeg, we're going to be doing a very special Canada Day uh, spectacular, somewhat like we did last year, and we're going to focus on... Memories of Canadian artists about their growing up as Canadians, also their specific hometowns, what it was like, what their music scenes was like. We've got a lot of great stuff. Christopher, you and I will reminisce about certain things. We have a couple of very special guests, and uh, it's going to be great. So we're looking forward to that coming up in just a few weeks' time. <laughs> That's Foreigner from 1981, Lou Graham on vocals, and Urgent. What a great vocal performance. Oh my goodness, yeah,
0: that's Mm -hmm. memorable, that one. If you're curious about the details in a band breakup, check out this 1987 clip from Foreigner's Lou Graham, who is both a solo artist, and this is tricky, and a band member at the same time. Yes. Trying to navigate that tight space between doing the right thing artistically and strategically, this is such an open and thoughtful look at the dilemma he faced.
5: you know, I was listening to your album ready or not, and I was wondering how long you had it within you to do a solo album? Has it been a long time coming?
6: uh yeah, I'd say about four or five years I've been you know wishing to do this and uh, I couldn't for contractual reasons, but uh, as soon as as soon as I was more or less a free agent, I was ready to go
5: uh-huh and how did the band foreigner? react to you saying hey guys i i got this all together i'm gonna to do a solo album
6: um i think when i first started mentioning it uh to them uh, a few years back I, I don't think they took me very seriously it was like there goes lou again talking about a solo album you know? uh-huh. <laughs> but uh i think when i finally put the pieces together um they knew i was serious i i don't think they were really pleased um
5: I read somewhere where it was uh, perhaps they were afraid of the Steve Perry journey situation
6: uh yeah, um, more or less I think they they felt it would be um i think they were a little concerned that it would be a, a an inferior album and and maybe uh be detrimental to um uh, foreigner's integrity, so to speak, because they they really had nothing uh, to to gauge success on. As far as me doing something on my own, mm-hmm. uh, I was never able to really uh, uh, complete my song ideas within the band. Mick would always uh, kind of end up foreignerizing them to to fit with the other foreigner songs. So uh, this was kind of kind of a, a left field, real shot uh, in the dark for me. And they were all a little concerned that uh, it might not turn out very well.
5: So how are the relationships now?
6: Okay. Uh, so so, uh, again. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's.
11: You
6: know, I think I think the success of it has a little caught them off guard a little bit. We had been rehearsing and uh, writing songs for the new Foreigner album, and I must, you know, being very candid about this, it's been a little uncomfortable.
5: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you are going into the studio at the end of this month to record this new Foreigner album.
6: Uh, as far as I know, uh, actually, it, it's—I have to say, my my future with the band is a little bit up in the air right now because they, Foreigner would like to release an album uh, like early summer, and uh, that would be a real conflict should my album continue to um, be received as it has and, and be really strong this summer, you couldn't exactly uh, release a Foreigner album on top of a Lou Graham album.
5: Exactly, because uh, that con- conflicts with touring.
6: It, it conflicts with touring. Uh, it would be such a saturation of, of, of my voice mm-hmm. uh, on the air, and it just doesn't, doesn't make good artistic sense. It doesn't make good business sense. You would think uh, that uh, my album should run its course, leave a little space, then release a Foreigner album. That would be the the obvious way to do things. However, if if they want to release a foreigner album this summer, uh, they'll have to they'll have to do it with another singer, and that's 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 we're we're in the balance right mm-hmm.
1: now. Ooh, that is a tough situation. Those guys eventually did mend fences, but only did so sporadically until 2003, when Lou Graham and Mick Jones just could not, under any circumstances, get along. Christopher, it's like you and I when the mics are off, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're going to give people the wrong idea
1: Man I know, we actually have to You're
0: taking, f- you're taking the romance out of this whole thing You that's realize right. that, right?
1: We actually have to manufacture the outrage Between you and I Just to make us more interesting
0: Well, that's not possible <laughs>
1: Yeah
0: <laughs> Tom, still to come Peter Gabriel gets blatantly honest About his split with Genesis But first Let's talk about Sonny Without share.
1: That's Sonny and Cher from nineteen sixty five and I got you, babe.
0: You know, if your image of Cher is of a strong woman who wouldn't take any nonsense from a man, and I mean you, David Letterman, <laughs> you wouldn't be alone. But her marriage to Sonny Bono represented a different power dynamic as she describes so well.
1: Sonny was the whole thing, you know, he guided the whole number and then he he was very harsh, kind of in a way, you know, like, where are you and what are you doing and, and all that. And, and after a while, I felt, you know, I was grown up and I really wasn't doing anything, but I would like to go, you know, shopping or something like that. And he just wasn't into that. He really, like, people thought I was really brazen on the TV show, you know, and putting him down all that. That was something that was an act, you know. I mean, it was fun and we would have it, but it was nothing that was ever carried home because he's very Victorian as a man, you know. When the woman gets home, she all of a sudden becomes the wife and the wife is definitely behind the husband. Uh, That whole TV image of Sonny being the brunt of Cher's withering humor was great TV, but it was just not true in real life. Christopher, if they put Cher's life and career on the screen, a movie would not be enough. It would have to be at least a 10-episode miniseries because she was there for so much. You know, from the Phil Spector days, through the Sonny and Cher days, through through the TV show, Greg Allman, David Geffen plus her acting career, plus her musical comeback, plus her third musical comeback with Believe in 1999. She has an arc, not an arc. She has so many arcs. She looks like a mountain range, right? Like her story is unbelievable. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's a fun fact about Cher, Christopher. A toy company released Sonny and Cher dolls in the mid 70s. Not only did Cher's doll outsell Sonny's doll, it outsold the Barbie doll too.
0: Well, you know what's going to happen when ours come out. I'm <laughs> sorry to tell you. Forget about it, Ken. Just, yeah, exactly. You can leave. You can leave now.
1: Black Sabbath from 1970 and Paranoid. Never got it. Never got it. Really? I what? love that song. Yeah. Oh man. I well I figured
0: you would and I need you to tell me why.
1: <laughs> oh, it's so tight. It's like a it's almost like a Ramon song, like it's fast and it's tight and it's really the I love the vocal. Like I, I love everything about that song. I'm not a huge Black Sabbath fan. You know, I couldn't tell you more than three or four songs by them, but honest to God, Paranoid just smokes and it's pure rock and roll. Okay. <laughs> you know, Tom
0: bitterness comes in so many flavors (laughs) here's the sabbath version (laughs) and on the sabbath they were bitter uh the sabbath version of the classic band breakup note that the usual suspects are named the manager the agent the label and of course an opportunistic rival band interestingly ozzy does not blame his fellow bandmates
11: the actual reason why I left Sabbath was because I got very bored with the, the internal politics. I mean, the Sabbath was, on the front, on the surface, it was a great cult thing for the kids. But behind the scenery, it was as black as his name, you know. Because mm-hmm. every, I mean, we'd get, we'd walk a foot and get knocked back six miles, you know. And it was like a struggle. And, and, and in the end of the day, we were fighting the world, management, agents, record company and oh I mean the last two we ever did with, with, uh, well, I did with Black Savas was with Van Halen now Van Halen were on the same record comp- label as, as Warner Brothers mm-hmm. both the same band and we were getting treated like we were and didn't exist by the record company and yet Van Halen were an up and coming band like we, we were being used like as a launch pad for them you know mm-hmm. and I, I felt really dis- disillusioned by it and I thought well Dad, don't need this anymore at the end of the day we started quarrelling and bickering at each, each other and it was like Everyone was. Everyone wanted the split, but no one was. Everyone was afraid to say, "We can't divorce Black Sabbath because that's been our bread and butter for so many years." And I just had enough of it. And I thought, "Well, sink or swim. Goodbye, guys." And I, and as it happens, it's been the best move I've ever made in my life.
1: You can definitely see the lure of staying with a famous band because it's the source of your fame and your income. But Ozzy knew that he would lose his mind if he didn't follow his own path. And as we know. Ozzy became totally normal after he left Black Sabbath. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's the thing about Ozzy, you know, all the all the histrionics on stage and his reputation being what it is. I love hearing these interview clips where he's completely yeah. straightforward. I, he thinks I about why why he's doing what he's doing and he can explain it very articulately. That was a good interview. Now, of course, Ozzy did reunite with Sabbath for their final tour, and they played their final show in February of 2017 in mm. their hometown of Birmingham, England. If looks
7: could kill, they probably will in games without frontiers
9: or without tears.
1: Games Without Frontiers, Peter Gabriel on famous lost words. Perhaps one of the most fascinating breakups ever happened in 1975 when Peter Gabriel left Genesis. And boy, does Peter have a few things to say about it.
0: Let's get forensic. You want details? We got them from Peter Gabriel. The amazing thing is that this interview took place 11 years after his split with Genesis. But late in this clip, you'll hear how the wounds are still fresh.
7: I think there were a number of reasons. Inside the band, uh, things were getting a little harder. Um, In terms of composition, I think we all were learning how to do different things and wanted to stretch our muscles. Uh, and uh, I think there would have been a certain amount of feeling that the time I was with the band that I was credited with writing virtually everything, which was very unfair to the others. The time I left the band and the band sounded very similar, um, the whole thing reversed and I was credited with uh, having written uh, none of it. So I guess it's um, swings in and roundabouts there. And I think on a personal level we just had our first child and it seemed uh, it was a very difficult birth and it didn't seem she was gonna live for the first week. Um, Now she's fine, very healthy, but that was far more important to me than making a Genesis record, which we were in the middle of. uh, And the band at that time not being parents themselves were very unsympathetic in a way. I think that had the effect of creating some bad feeling. And uh, finally, (laughs) and then I'll stop, I didn't like what I was becoming in a sort of successful rock and roll band, that it seemed uh, that that I saw things within myself. It seemed to be uh, pushing me towards the uh, formula rock and roll entertainer, and I just wanted to get out of the business.
1: Salisbury Hill from 1977, a song that tells part of the story about why he left that band. That's Peter Gabriel with one of the most honest and real clips we have in our archives. Yeah, for sure. By the way, we have more from that very same 1986 interview with Peter coming up in just a few weeks. And trust me, it is incredible.
0: Well, that's it for this week. Time to send Tom back into the archives with his miner's hat on as he does more excavating among the greatest interviews you've never heard.
1: And there's still plenty of gems to dig up, Christopher, including Robert Palmer, Steve Winwood, Sheik, Gwen Stefani, Jewel, the Doobie Brothers, Ray Charles, Triumph, and many more.
0: If you would like to advertise with us and get your message out to tens of thousands of listeners, email us at FamousLostPod at gmail.com.
1: And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to you soon.